A busy old day on RTE Radio 1 and plenty to catch up on. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. We need each other. People forget that. We're social creatures at the end of the day and we only have each other in our lives. You know, that's yeah, that's true. the simple truth. And so um, we need to find ways not to live siloed lives. And um, I think volunteering is one way of doing that. And Winston Churchill had very seriously considered bombing the entire centre of Dublin City. Um, I don't think it's quite fair to say the entire centre. I think he wanted to bomb the four courts where where the anti-treaty forces were. Right on, where is he? How are you doing? How are you, Linda? Oh, sorry, it's Marty. How are you doing? How are you, Linda? How are you? Josh, you're looking gorgeous. You are fantastic. Ray, I got that dress you ordered, by the way. <laughs> And we'll start in the afternoon and ahead of Ireland's wild youth representing us in the Eurovision semi-finals, Ray and the gang were in Liverpool. <laughs> yes, Fords Road, bienvenue and welcome to Liverpool for Eurovision 2023. That sounds like a good audition, doesn't it? <laughs> good afternoon on this Tuesday afternoon. Uh, we're live here uh, in the media centre uh, of the MS um, Bank Arena in Liverpool. And tonight, uh, on behalf of Ukraine, the UK will host the first semi final of this year's Eurovision Song Contest. And as you heard Shane saying in the news, uh, Wild Youth will be taken to the stage sixth in the lineup. There are 15 acts in all, and 10 of those acts will go forward to Saturday's grand final. Uh, we hope to chat to the lads. They're in rehearsals and dress rehearsals and all sorts of things, but hopefully they will take time out to talk to us. Um, we have loads of people to talk to from various places. We were out and about and we put microphones under people's chins. Uh, we have Neil back at base. Good afternoon, Neil. Ray, yes, I have to pretend that the radio centre <laughs> in Dublin is as glamorous as the arena in Liverpool this afternoon. Can we have the Dublin vote? I always wanted to say that. There you go. Uh, and we have Sinead Eulicon out in the streets of Liverpool. Hello, Sinead. Hello, Ray. I'm downtown in Liverpool. I'm here in the Euro Village. This is where all the fans gather if they can't get into the arena. And it is buzzing here. There's colours everywhere. Sparkles, jewels, glitters, face paints flags, hats, you name it and I'm smack bang in the middle I've got my sparkles on, I've got my face paints on as well. In front of me I can see the stage. Over a hundred acts will perform on this stage in the Euro Village over the next five or the, the next few days, for the past nine days they've been performing there and but to the back of me there's the Liverpool Museum. Also to my right hand side there's the Cunard Building where the Museum of Modern Pop is so it is located in the best possible place and it's I'm soaking up the atmosphere there are food trucks there are people there's a great atmosphere and buzz around and you'll have to come down to experience it yourself Ray. Uh, you know Liverpool uh, is famous for its music 56 number ones from musicians who can claim to be Liverpudlian uh, the greatest number of number ones from any city in the world wow. so it's uh, nicknamed uh, the capital of pop music it's also nicknamed uh, Ireland's second capital so it's no surprise that we're getting a wonderful welcome here and, and that's the thing I don't know about you Sinead but I was out and about and just smiley faces loads of colour and not over the top it's just a nice understated warmth in Liverpool 
I must agree. Usually I go around with the microphone looking for people to speak to me and usually people will bow their heads. But today people wanted to talk to me. People wanted to share their stories, their experiences. People wanted to tell me what their favourite songs were and also sing some of their favourite songs. Some of them that will be uh, heard tonight in the semi-final and again on Thursday night. There's definitely a nice air around the place and United by Music is uh, the slogan that's being used by the Eurovision this year and I really, really sensed that today. Well, let's meet some of those people. Dave. My name's... I'm Dave, I'm from Leeds. Who I want to win is Moldova. Who I think will win is Sweden. Um, what does it mean to me? I don't know, we just love it. It's just so camp. We've been watching it since January. We watch the overseas qualification programmes, so we're just hooked on it. <laughs> Give us a cha-cha-cha, go on. Cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha! Whoa, a lot of cha-cha going around Liverpool because Finland uh, are the favourite with their song Cha-Cha-Cha and it was Robert's favourite as well. My name's Robert and I'm from Kent. I think Finland's going to win and Eurovision is basically bigger than Christmas for me. I've been watching it since I was five years old, going from watching it with my nan to then throwing parties every single year with all my family and all my friends. So it's like the most important thing to me ever. <laughs> and then later, Wild Youth. Okay, we're broadcasting live from Liverpool and flying the flag for Ireland tonight in the stadium here, the MS Bank Arena in Liverpool will be Wild Youth! Great to see you lads. Great to see you too. This could be the biggest day of your lives. That sounds yeah. like a song, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Day this could be the biggest day of our lives. Uh, David, a bit of ole ole ole. There might be some of that in the arena tonight. Hopefully, yeah. We met so many uh, Irish fans on the way over. Uh, loads Amazing. of them coming over because it's so close. Mm. So how is it going, Connor? It's going good. Yeah, it's been amazing uh, so far. As you said, there's so many Irish, I think, here already. And there's so many that live here. It feels like every second accent is an Irish accent. So it's been great to meet so many people and we felt totally at home. Yeah. Uh, great buzz around the city and just lovely people. Did you know that they call Liverpool Ireland's second capital? Yes. For good reason. Uh, so how many rehearsals have you done? How many times have you sang the song? So the first time, first rehearsal you do like three. And then you go to like a live screening room, which is like a cinema. But with loads of people kind of shouting at you. Um, and you, yeah, it's on a timer. So it's a 25 minute long movie. And you watch it back and you kind of critique certain things. And then you go, two days later, you do the exact same thing again. Then you watch back and you critique things. But then yesterday was like the final dress rehearsal during the day, the sound check. And then last night was a full dress rehearsal with a full arena. And right. they ran the show like the, the way they'll run it tonight. That's how it's going to feel. Yeah. yeah. But, but 100% more tense. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Ed, when you were watching shows back, were you going, Connor, you need to dance better than that or you need to look uh, at it the was Michael yeah. Keighley that was telling <laughs> me I needed to dance better you have to tread incredibly careful in those situations we've all worked very hard you have to just focus on say getting the camera angles right yes. and then I think we're all you know in our own right we'll self-assess ourselves and go I could do that better I don't right. need to turn to anybody and say yo you need to yeah. blah 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 we know it ourselves now, now you, you probably thought you knew what the Eurovision was like but being here how can you explain it to people, the madness and the craziness and the wonderfulness and the colours and the sequins and everything else? That's basically it. Yeah, I think you summed it up. Oh, right. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, today has kind of felt the most real, of course, but uh, it's everything and more than we thought it could be, you know? Um, the glitz and the glam and the energy, the people are so nice, the fans are 
fanatic. It's nuts. It's crazy. And and it's all gone according to plan. Connor, you're always on the prize here, and you're probably concentrating on getting out on that mm. stage tonight. Mm-hmm. Semi-final number one. You're sixth in the running order. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know now off by heart who's before you and who's after you. Yeah. Does that matter for anything? Uh, I don't think so. Honestly, I I think like when anyone asks like what do you do to prepare, is it like canvassing for a political election? It's like. I think what matters is just the performance tonight and delivering the best possible performance. And I think you could be favourite or you could be very bottom. But if you totally smash it tonight, I think because it's a public vote, that can all flip and anything can happen. So we're just kind of, we are, we're laser focused on tonight. Um, it was amazing to do the dress rehearsal last night to a full arena. It was very cool as well. This kind of little bit of bragging, but I think it's kind of good too. But I, I, obviously we've five of the top five favourites are in our semi-final. Yes. And I think last night on the vote from everyone who was in the arena, we finished sixth. So I think that's amazing. Yes. That's a huge lift for us to wake up to this morning to know that out of the top five favourites, we were the next. Yes, which is brilliant because 10 out of the 15 go through to the final. Mm -hmm. You know all these stats, but I'm just reminding our listeners (laughs) (laughs) that Ireland haven't got out of the semi-final since 2018. Yeah. And Rhino shocked to see that it. Yeah. Uh, And that is all of five years ago. Mm -hmm. So do you feel any of that pressure? Dave, on your shoulders. Um, yeah, I, th- I, I think so. We're definitely nervous. Um, we want to do well, of course. We want to, we want to do our country proud, and we want to do ourselves proud, and we want to uh, make every all the hard work and all the effort and stress and tears and happiness that we've put into this over the last few months. We want to make it worth something at the end of the day. You know what I mean? So, um, it all kind of accumulates. Yes. Yeah, and there is a bit of pressure, but. We are used to putting ourselves under pressure a lot, you know. Potentially, the the experience we have might take over. Yeah. When we're walking up to the stage, all those performances we've done over the years. Yeah, you you've, you like you've into us. You supported Niall Horn, Lewis Capaldi. You've we've also it. we've also played Wheelands to yes. four family members, so it's like <laughs> yeah, sometimes sometimes they're the gigs to yeah, make yeah. you on. I it like I always say this. Sometimes it's easier to play a room that's full than it is to play to five family members who have just chipped in to right. buy tickets. Yeah, yeah. And you're not getting the crowd into that you'd necessarily so, want. Uh, again, people may not know this at home. Three minutes. It's three minutes. It's a public vote, as you said, Connor, tonight. So you have those 180 seconds to make an impact yeah. uh, on the people sitting at home in their sofas all over Europe. 180 seconds, yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's what it is, isn't it? Wow. Isn't it? Yeah, do the maths on it. <laughs> yeah. Wild youth and then Dustin. Oh, sorry, it's Marty. How are you doing? How are you, Linda? How are you Josh, doing? You're looking gorgeous. You are fantastic. Ray, I got that dress you ordered, by the way. <laughs> and I got those tickets, because I know you told me you couldn't get tickets from the RT head, so I've got a ticket for yourself and Dave for the noise. Don't be worried. You can sit through all the misery, as you said. Now, when we're live, I'm going to send this up big time, right? Make it out that myself and Linda are at each other's loggerheads, right? So we play that out, Linda. It'd be brilliant. be brilliant. Brilliant for the writings, Ray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remind us, Sarah McInerney, you're right. She's a chancer. She's a chancer, Ray. No. She's we're a actually chancer. on air. We're on air now. Huh? We're on air now. Yes. You, you should be. I, Why didn't I you did, tell me? I, I didn't have no chance to right, jump in. Exactly. Like you should know that music for the dead, for the nearly dead. <laughs> Is that the slogan? Sorry, we just oh. we couldn't stretch to a red light. But we, we're live and... and That's your mother. Yeah. <laughs> steady. Oh, steady. Steady. Yeah, I think his microphone just broke. She watched yeah. it as well, didn't she? You, I believe, were invited by the BBC to come over. Hold on, hold on, hold on, all right. <clears throat> I can see the shock on your face. I cannot confirm or deny <laughs> that I have been invited over to the Ukraine's win in Liverpool 2023. 
I cannot confirm or deny at present. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> well, the, the problem is we played him out. Oh. We're having that lovely chat. Yeah. Brilliant. No, no, it's just, just absolutely amazing. It's amazing. Like Wild Youth, they are in a tough draw, but it's, it's a brilliant song. Yeah. Brilliant so, song. Yeah, Wings yeah, yeah. and fingers crossed because they're, they're... Yes, please God. And you're probably in a brilliant position to give them advice because, of course, you took part in Eurovision 2008. I don't think I'd be the person to be giving advice. <laughs> no. 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 Maybe not a road we need to travel. Yeah, no, no. No, no I, I'll be honest with you. I, I mean, I was ahead of my time. That was it. Shopping trolleys are so in now. I mean, they weren't back then, you know? And they're only a euro, right? <laughs> and little, they're two euro. Don't get stung, right? Yeah. And you put them in the river after. <laughs> and you're finished with them. We got one for you, Marty. You can wheel you around the arena. Be really great. Be fantastic. crack. Well, I have a great memory of you being interviewed in the trolley. It was like, you know, it was a special, it was a special moment yeah, it's in awesome. Serbia. Look, I know Pearson Connolly fought and died for freedom, but they should have fought and died for everyone. Every Irish person to have a go in Eurovision. It is the best one, the best part, the best country. Now, there are people, Dustin, and just to be serious for a moment, there are people who say that that's when the tide turned for us. Like, we were a winning nation seven times, yeah. record-breaking, and then... He okay. sent you, yeah. Okay, agree, 100%. I brought it up to another level. <laughs> that's, well, that's not I clear, don't you? out of the park. It was just amazing. <laughs> no, I mean, like, it's like you said to me, right, look, why don't you go for Eurovision? It's 2008, and last year, Dervish Dolls, Krusty's from Sligo, finished last. And then Chris Darden, <laughs> he went tits up, I think, didn't he? He was finished second last the year before that. And then Don and Joe didn't qualify. You said, what have you got to lose, Dustin? <laughs> the proceeds with you. And Ray, you were wrong. <laughs> you were wrong, Ray. Yeah. That's the way you're dragged into this all the time. I'm never Don't worry, I'll come on Lyric FM. No, you're not. Don't worry. I'll work on Thanks for doing well. But, uh, now, it's, yeah. it's one of them things where, yeah, possibly wise, we were a bit naive. When I say we, possibly, it's on my own head. I mean, I was so nervous that night, I think I laid an egg. At least I laid an egg. <laughs> Still in the shopping trolley, cleaning up the Nile Far place. But anyway, it, it's one of them where we went thinking what Eurovision was, but Eastern Europe still held it in its arms. Like they were really. Oh, yes. The West yes. had sort of given up in the way. Ah, I see. A lot of, Scandinavians had a couple of wins, but it was basically. So that's Europe. what it was. Yeah. That's, that, it, like he has analyzed it. I did say the lion. I did say the lion. Eastern Europe, we love you. Do you like Irish stew? Or goulash, as it is to you. Have you man? I. I Lindy, you look. You look I'm always sticking up for your song, why me? <laughs> People think James Joyce wrote that. He didn't. It was me. Dustin on the Ray Darcy Show in the afternoon. And on the Ryan Tupperty Show, what to do, what to do, a moral conundrum in the morning. Is it a conundrum? I mentioned that I got this uh, beautiful gift on Friday night of a guitar from Ed Sheeran at the end of our interview. And I got it. He, he offered to sign it and he did. And I got it protected and, and it's lovely and we're going to play it and, it and it's great but Kevin McNicholas got in touch to say on the topic of autographed guitars many years ago I gave guitar lessons to an eight-year-old who was a huge Christy Moore fan and then we love Christy I think I'd like to consider him a friend I'm certainly an admirer and we all love him anyway this young lad had not yet got his own guitar so I loaned him one of mine for a couple of weeks and during that time his dad brought him to a Christy Moore gig. And for whatever reason, they brought the guitar along. After the gig, the young lad was lucky enough to get backstage to meet Christy himself, guitar in hand. And Christy produced a big marker, in fairness to him, and signed the front of Kevin's guitar, Kevin not being the young lad, but the guy who lent the guitar, and he signed it to, and he, I won't give the boy's name, to boy's name, Right on, Christy. 
Okay, so he's echoing his song. He's also giving a message. But, but it, it's not the kid's guitar. <laughs> but Kevin asks, what, pray tell, was I to do now? Yours, Kevin McNichol. And I was reading this going, this email came in overnight going, I don't know who, like, that's, first of all, <laughs> legally problematic, probably, but not really. I, I'm sure you just said to the young lad, Asher, look it, I own many guitars as a guitar made easy um, guy in Hedford. So, you, you, you know, keep it. Give me lots of money, but keep it. Or, you know, buy me a book token or, you know, a bottle of wine. Whisk. Uh, some, just make it, there has to be some transaction here. I mean, I can't just give you the guitar and then have it graffitied by the great Christy Moore. Uh, I mean, the guitar suddenly quadruples in value with Christy's uh, name there. But I still don't know what the end of this story is. Did he say to the kid, no problem, that's gas. I'm a guitar down, but I understand. Did he say to the kid's father, you owe me. 376 euro and I want a receipt for the guitar or you know did I, I, I'm not sure how that, how that story ended up but I would like to get I'd like to get closure on it because it, it's putting me on edge what did they, what happened uh, so later Kevin McNicholas told Ryan the rest of the story Kevin McNicholas you have 10 seconds to tell us what happened with the guitar morning Ryan Hi. I gave him the guitar you gave the kid the guitar you pay me for it Gave it to him. His dad insisted on paying for it. I said, no. When I gave you that guitar last week, it was worth 50 quid. And I said, look at it now. It's priceless. Ah. So I guess it's hanging on a wall somewhere. <laughs> I, I, and Kevin, your business is? I teach guitar. Guitarmadeeasy.ie. Look it up. Guitarmadeeasy. Ryan, are you a beginner or an improver? I'm, an, I'm a beginner. I'm a beginner. I've had, since I was about 18, I've had about three, four, I'd say about five. I've got five chords, but I don't know what to do with them. <laughs> right, we'll talk about that at a later stage okay, for Kevin. sure. Watch this space, Kevin McNicholas on the Ryan Tuberty Show. And on today with Claire Byrne, Michael Pertillo's television documentary Taking Sides, Britain and the Civil War. As we know, during the Civil War, a tragic period in our history, the pro-treaty side were under pressure from Britain to defeat those who opposed the treaty and the new Irish Free State. But new documents show the lengths the British government was prepared to go to to ensure the Free State succeeded and paint an uncomfortable picture of a chilling Irish request from the provisional government that if granted would have changed the course of history using secret military reports cabinet memos, private correspondence and dusty old diaries, journalist, broadcaster and former politician Michael Portillo is shedding new light on the key events and personalities of this most fraught time his documentary Taking Sides, Britain and the Civil War airs this week and he joins me on the line now. Michael good morning to you Hello Claire so in this documentary, you go right into the heart of the British government in that time leading up to and during the Irish Civil War. So explain firstly how you managed to do that. This is the latest in a series of programmes that I've made with RTE in which we use um, British cabinet documents, uh, military orders, letters between leading personalities. We uh, sometimes call these the enemy files from the Irish point of view. This is what is going on at the heart of the British government during key moments of uh, Irish history. And in this case, we're looking at uh, how, for example, the British spied upon the Irish delegation that came to negotiate the treaty at the uh, end of 1921. And in particular, we investigate 
the extent to which there was collaboration between Winston Churchill, who handled uh, matters after the treaty had been signed for the British government, and Michael Collins, a leading figure in the provisional uh, uh, government, uh, how there was collusion between them so that the British could ensure that the pro-treaty side won. And, um, and some of the revelations, I think, will be painful and certainly were very, very surprising to me. Now, you mentioned their collusion between Winston Churchill and Michael Collins, and we get these tantalising glimpses throughout the documentary of the nature of their relationship. Can you tell us a bit more about that? How would you characterise it? There were similarities to, between the two men. They were both uh, men of action, including military action. They were both men who were perfectly prepared to use violence. They were both um, charismatic. Um, and I think uh, Churchill, obviously a much older man, uh, admired uh, Collins in some way. He had, of course, referred to Collins and uh, Collins's associates as the murder gang before. So it was a complex relationship. But I think uh, that that Churchill was somewhat struck by Collins when he had dealings with him in London during the protracted negotiations. Collins was a charismatic figure who actually also cut his way through British uh, society, extraordinarily enough. He was uh, feted in British society. When um, Collins went back uh, and found, of course, that the treaty was not accepted by de Valera and by others, and as the civil war got underway, uh, Churchill was intensely anxious or suspicious that Collins might not be relied upon to take the necessary action. For example, the four courts in Dublin are occupied by anti-treaty forces, and Churchill is very impatient with Collins trying to get him to uh, throw that garrison out um, regarding uh, the garrison there as a breach of the treaty. He does, however, uh, also say, Churchill, that... Um, he wants Collins to take care of himself, that he's worried that he's uh, in danger of being killed. Of course, he is killed about three weeks after um, Churchill writes that. Um, and I must say, Churchill adapts very quickly to Collins's death. At, at first, he's worried that the people who come after Collins uh, may not be robust, that they may make some kind of uh, deal with de Valera. Uh, but actually, with uh, people like Cosgrave and O'Higgins coming in, it turns out that Collins is. Uh, it turns out that Churchill is highly satisfied with these people, who seem to be more robust in defence of the treaty, and more willing to use violence against fellow Irishmen to secure the treaty, even than Collins. So Claire asked Michael Bertillo about some of the revelations in the documentary. Let's talk about some of those astonishing revelations that I mentioned at the beginning here. <laughs> So these detailed plans that you and your team found, which tell us that after the treaty was signed, so this is while Rory O'Connor and those opposed to the treaty, they'd occupied the four courts. And Winston Churchill had very seriously considered bombing the entire centre of Dublin City. Tell us more about what you found. Um, I don't think it's quite fair to say the entire centre. I think he wanted to bomb the four courts where where the anti-treaty forces were. Um, and I think that is clear because uh, Churchill begins by saying, I don't want Irish pilots to do this because uh, they won't have the accuracy. They won't, they won't have the experience of flying these aeroplanes and they'll kill men, women and children. So Churchill was, I think, considering a precision bombing of the four courts. Now, whether 
a precision bombing was a possibility in 1922 with the state of technology then, I leave it to you to imagine. But Churchill had uh, planes ready. Um, we know that the planes which were uh, stationed at Collinstown um, practiced bombing. They were Bristol bombers. They were capable of carrying a number of 20-pound bombs, although the British military doubted whether that would be effective and wondered whether much bigger bombs up to 500 pounds could be used. Although, again, I rather wonder whether the aircraft would have been capable of carrying such a bomb. More than that, Churchill wanted the planes to be disguised as Irish. He wanted to paint out the RAF roundels so that the Irish provisional government could claim that it was bombing the four courts. This was um, typical behaviour of Churchill, this extraordinary gung-hoism, this um, extraordinary willingness to use extreme violence. And it's one of, one of a number of instances in the programme where you heave a sigh of relief that Churchill's plan is not actually implemented in the end. Because clearly it would have led to catastrophe, Michael. And do you know why it didn't go ahead? I don't think we do know exactly why, but from time to time, wiser counsel, wiser heads uh, win the day. And I think that's probably the case here as well. I think probably at some point, uh, somebody says to Churchill or, or maybe another minister overrules Churchill that, sorry, that could only be Lloyd George. But anyway, it doesn't happen. What, what does happen, of course, is that Collins is eventually spurred into action. And so the fact that Collins bombards the four courts using, by the way, British 25 pounder uh, guns, uh, means that the British don't have to do the job for him. Um, I might say here that um, those who'd occupied the four courts, I think, very much wanted the British to attack them. They wanted to unite Irish people by being attacked again by the British. And Churchill is in constant danger of falling into that trap. And uh, he narrowly avoids that trap, uh, by which I mean that he persuades Collins to do the bombardment rather than the British. And then you have this fascinating record which appears to show that Churchill attempted to have his involvement in that planning uh, destroyed. Yes, in in an incident which, uh, you, you know, at least in Britain has sort of resonance today, this relationship between ministers and civil servants. Uh, Churchill leaves office um, towards the end of October 1922 because the coalition collapses and he's a liberal and he's ousted by the Conservatives. And then he remembers that he's drafted a proclamation which was to be uh, read out in the event that the British soldiers who were still um, in Ireland seized control of Dublin because they'd given up on Collins. Now, as I say, that didn't happen. Uh, Collins did what the British wanted him to do. The British didn't have to do the job themselves. And then as uh, Churchill has gone out of office, his mind goes back to this proclamation that he's drafted saying that they've seized the city again and they've arrested everybody and they're going to do with them whatever they want and thinks that's uh, that's rather unfortunate, that document. Um, you know, it looks as though uh, it associates Churchill with what would have been a momentous blunder. And he asks the civil service if they'll destroy the document and the civil service decline to destroy it because they think it's an important part of historic record. Mm -hmm. uh, quite an interesting incident. That's fascinating. It's fascinating. And Claire asked Michael Bertillo about another revelation in his documentary. And then this other big revelation that you have in there, this request that you discovered from the provisional government of the Irish Free State to the British government asking for poisonous gas. 
Yes, uh, let me say as it appears. So this is a cabinet paper, and the cabinet paper says that the um, Irish Provisional Government, we're still talking about the siege of the four calls, has asked for gas grenades. Uh, now, it's not entirely clear what sort of gas they're talking about, but the British government clearly thinks that they may be asking for poison gas because the British government immediately reviews a thing called the Washington Convention, which has been drawn up after the First World War with a, with a view to stopping the use of poison gas. It's not actually been ratified, but the British nonetheless feel bound by it. And the British cabinet quickly concludes that it cannot supply poison gas to the, uh, to the Irish provisional government. It then goes on to consider what other kind of gas it might uh, supply. And actually, I don't cover this in the documentary, but in the end, the British do send gas grenades to Ireland. Um, they're sort of nearer tear gas. If you've got a spectrum of mm -hmm. you know, horrible gases, they're nearer to tear gas. But when, the, um, when those grenades arrive in Ireland, the British government decide that even they are against the Washington Convention. And actually, the provisional Irish government is never even told that the grenades have arrived in Ireland. But uh, it certainly appears that the Irish provisional government requested gas from the British to help end the siege of the four courts. Yeah, appears might be the operative word because how sure can we be of the provenance of that claim, Michael? Is it attributed to an individual or is it just attributed to the Irish government requesting something? Because we haven't seen the request, have we? We've seen the response to it. I haven't seen the request. That's perfectly true. What I've seen is the cabinet minute and the cabinet minute refers, I think, to the Irish provisional government. Now, you found documents that made mention of the Minister for Justice, Kevin O'Higgins, and, and I think you, you mentioned him here a little earlier too. What did those documents say about him? Because you did explain to us the fears that were there once Michael Collins was shot at Bail Nablaw. Who was coming after him? Who would do this job and keep the peace from a, a British perspective? Kevin O'Higgins then, what was the British government's view of him? Well, the view of Kevin O'Higgins and um, uh, of Cosgrave was that the British government was delighted with them. Um, these were people who were really getting the job done. And there was an element of surprise. I don't think British intelligence about these people was particularly good. They, they, they hadn't realised, for example, that you know, Cosgrave was from uh, a pre-Republican uh, generation of, uh, of Irish uh, freedom fighters. Um, and uh, they just thought that what they were doing decisively, winning the war, decisively uh, triumphing for the treaty was, was, you know, all that they could hope for. Uh, by contrast with Collins, about whom, you know, they had anxieties and doubts all the time. Mm -hmm. You make mention uh, of the fact that Kevin O'Higgins signed the death warrants of 77 anti-treaty fighters and, and that poignant fact that that included the death warrant of his best man, Rory O'Connor, who we mentioned before, had taken control of the four courts. Yes. I mean, I feel in a way it's almost not for me to comment on this. I think this is, um, you know, this must be a very, very painful um, matter for Irish people. And um, one of the Irish historians that I speak to in the documentary mentions that perhaps even more shockingly than the uh, signing of the death warrant of your your best man is signing the death warrants of many ordinary soldiers, um, very young, uh, very young men who were uh, lined up and shot. Uh, and I, I think the policy of the provisional Irish government was that if they suffered a, a military setback, uh, they'd secured Dublin, but they went on 
fighting outside Dublin, where the anti-treaty forces were stronger. And so the provisional Irish government would, would suffer setbacks, there would be ambushes, they, they'd, lose, uh, they'd lose soldiers out on the road. And they would then, by reprisal, um, shoot men that they held in custody. Um, so it, you know, it is very shocking, a very, very deplorable period. Michael Portillo speaking about his documentary, Taking Sides, Britain and the Civil War. Then later, Claire spoke to Professor of Modern History at UCD, Dermot Ferreter. So what did you make of those revelations? So we have that one about Winston Churchill and his fighter jets and then another one about uh, gas grenades, which we'll come to in a moment. The fighter jets first, though. These aren't hugely surprising. Michael Portillo has a tendency to refer to the documents he uses as extraordinary. Uh, And as he says himself in the documentary, he's a Brit coming at this for the first time. And this is great men history. This is the history of this period as seen through uh, Churchill and and senior members of the British government in particular, which is interesting uh, in its own way. Um, But it sometimes loses the wider context there. Uh, we have to remember about Churchill. He is a fascinating character and his relationship with Ireland is very interested, interesting. One of his contemporaries, um, Robert Cecil, suggested that he was only interested in public affairs when there was a prospect of bloodshed. Um, and he's energised by his martial thinking. That's the way he is. Yeah, well, well Michael Portillo said himself he was very gung-ho about action without thinking about the consequences afterwards. Oh, there's no doubt about that. And I suppose what's interesting about, you know, this revelation, for example, about the RAF, um, that there were various plans around getting the occupants of the four courts out. Mm-hmm. Now, we have to remember that there were civil servants uh, and Neville McCready, who's mentioned as the commander of the British forces in Ireland, who's still in Ireland with about 6,000 troops, that they were urging greater caution. Their basic idea was that this has to be left to the Irish themselves and we're only going to inflame the situation. Rory O'Connor and his comrades in, in the four courts want to embroil uh, the British army because it would serve their wider purposes. So obviously there were those trying to talk Churchill down. Um, but he had asked other questions. Why can't you ring them round and starve them out was another question. And who was he asking those questions of? He was asking Andy Cope. And Andy Cope was the senior British civil servant still in Dublin. He had been part of the Dublin Castle regime and he's there until October 1922. And again, Cope is saying they have to sort this out themselves. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I suppose you could see Churchill as being in a minority. But he's very motivated uh, by the idea of taking a hard line. Uh, And there are exaggerations around the idea of what's referred to by Michael Portillo as collusion uh, and zeal uh, when it comes to the relationship between the provisional government and the British government. Obviously, they were very reluctant to move against the four courts occupants. They've been there since the middle of April. Well, people with sense were, you know, and if you have Cope and you have McReady saying this is a bad idea for us to get involved. It shows an incredible naivety on the part of Churchill, does it not? But you see, he's full of melodrama and I think sometimes you can get caught up in the melodrama contained within the documents because he writes with such flourish. And of course, he had written in April to Michael Collins uh, saying, you must assert yourself or perish and be replaced by some other form of control. So there's always a threat 
in the background about Britain resuming um, conflict. And at the same time, he's writing to his wife and he's saying, we don't want to get drawn back in to the bog. He always referred to the bog. They always use that metaphor uh, or the swamps, as you referred to earlier yeah. on. Um, so there are contradictory messages around uh, Churchill's correspondence all the time. That's the nature of the character. Yeah. Um, and of course, his relationship uh, with Ireland, he is very much the minister for Irish affairs for the British government at that point. So I'm not for a moment doubting his importance, but it, it there are a lot of other things going on that don't get much of a look in in this documentary. And I appreciate, you know, this is the medium of television. It's difficult to do justice to the context. But what was really bothering Michael Collins an awful lot during this period about Churchill was that he wasn't doing enough about what was happening to the Catholic minority in Northern Ireland uh, and that relationship between the British government and James Craig. Um, and, you know, that's a very important part of what yeah. was going on in 1922. And Claire asked Dermot about the other revelation about gas grenades. Can we talk about that other revelation in the documentary? So that... Michael Portello and his team found a response from the British government, they say, to a request for gas grenades. Now, we haven't seen the request yeah. and, and that isn't... And quite, you quite rightly asked about the provenance of that document. Now, I hadn't heard of this before. It's quite yeah. shocking. Uh, but there's also the use of language. It was intimated, according to the part of the document that was read out, it was intimated that the Free State Government were, were looking for gas grenades to assist them in the clearing of the foreground. Yeah. Where did that request come from? Was it intimated? Uh, what did intimated mean? Was this a discussion between senior officials? Was this an informal exchange? How did it find its way onto uh, the cabinet record? Uh, there's a lot of vagueness uh, around that. But nonetheless, you know, th- th- that is quite shocking. It does suggest, <laughs> yeah, of course, I mean... a degree of desperation. But also it could have been generated as a result of some kind of informal exchange. Informal exchange, yeah. Because they went to the bother of of discussing the Washington Convention as a, a reason why, which wasn't even in, in force yet, but this is a reason why we wouldn't do this. Yeah. And then the suggestion is that they send some form of tear gas. Then they didn't tell the provisional government that that had arrived. It's extraordinary. But you see, it's chaotic. Yeah. And I mean, when you consider the summer of 1922, there is chaos. You know, there isn't clarity about how this is going to pan out. And even Michael Collins himself, you know, once the decision is made to attack the four courts, he becomes very decisive and he wanted a short war. He wanted them to be routed. And he did believe that this could be over quickly. And they are very willing, of course, to take as much support from Britain and armaments for Britain uh, as they can. Uh, But in the flurry of exchanges that are going on, there is a lot of confusion Mm -hmm. uh, and there is a lot of chaos. And that's the nature of the Irish question for the British government in in 1922. But what we shouldn't forget either is that Ireland was just one part of a wider imperial jigsaw. Like David Lloyd George is on the ropes during this period, not just because of what's going on in Ireland, what's going on in relation to possible war with Turkey, Uh, because, you know, Turkey are pushing Greek troops out of of allied territory. Uh, There's a lot of tension around that. The High Commission in Iraq is taking up a lot of time as well. When you go over to the archives in London, you realise how insignificant the Irish question is in overall terms, albeit one that was commanding attention and a lot of attention at specific Mm. periods. But the real desire is to try and get it off the agenda. A couple of things that Michael Portillo says that I want to ask you about. Here is history that Irish people may prefer not to know. And then he talks about the zeal of the pro-treaty provisional government in accepting British assistance at the start of the civil war. Now, is that exaggerated? Well, it's patronising. 
to tell us here is history that you might not like to hear. Uh, you know, and I mean, he makes the point. But he's, look, he's a Tory but grandee. But it, 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 it can be uncomfortable no, to it hear can be this uncomfortable. Stuff, and, and to his credit, you know, I mean, he has done four of these programmes now yeah. and he's often made the point that there's a huge ignorance in Britain about Irish history. Sometimes I feel these documentaries should be broadcast on the BBC as well as RTE. Uh, but we don't need to be told, Michael, thank you very much, uh, that this is going to be difficult for us to hear. It's not difficult for us to hear. We're very engaged with that history, particularly now in the centenary year. Um, so, you know, that that question of, of, of tone, and he addressed that in the interview as yeah. well. I mean... In fairness to him, he's conscious of how uh, sensitive this is. But there's nothing shocking uh, in, in that archive of 1922 uh, in London uh, when you consider minds that are saturated with imperialism. You know, they're of that age, they're of that mm-hmm. mindset. Professor Dermot Ferriter from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the live line in the afternoon, Colm O'Mungoin was sitting in for Joe and callers wanted their say about GAA Go. Well, dozens of people have been in touch on the issue of GAA Go and what's been shown on it and what's not been shown on it. And Eugene Dargan has his view on it. Eugene, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Colm. How are you doing? You are not happy with the situation with GAA Go. Is it the principle of paying for it or can you even access it? Well, first off, it's the principle of paying for it. Um, we, do, we do have a, it's, it's a national sport on a national TV um, and the fact that you can't, you, you buy your TV licence and then you come to the, the sport you're passionate about, hurling, and you can't even get it on your own TV. Now, I would much prefer to watch this at home than to have to go out to a pub to watch it. But the situation is they put us in, the, in this position where if you're in an area with poor uh, broadband then any of my mates that have got it for the game before last, they said it was just brutal. They just You couldn't watch it. It just kept freezing and the whole lot. So you end up giving up on it and sitting down and turning on your, on your radio to listen to it. Now, you know, as I said, when we pay for a licence, you hope that when you turn on your TV, you can watch it. Now, in this town, in Clamell Town itself, there's a lot of clubs around. There's a lot of people involved in the GAA. Uh, people giving all their time to training kids up and the whole lot. And when it comes to the big games like this, they like to sit down in front of their TV with their kids and, and whatever else and watch this game. Now you've taken that choice out of, out of their, their hands. Now, there's a lot of parents don't want to have to bring kids to a pub to watch a game. They don't want to do that. They want to be able to sit at home in their own TV, in their own rooms and watch their TV and watch these games live. And that's the only and option to available to you at the moment, is it? If you wanted to well, watch... The earlier matches from the um, Munster Senior Hurling Championship, you would have had to go to a pub. Or, or do they have the same problems when it comes to broadband? No, they, they wouldn't have the same problems. They, they, they'd probably have better connections or whatever else inside in pubs, um, like you would have had, say, with, with um, the, the Sky Sports or whatever else. You get there and you, yeah, you'll, you'll see your game and you'll see it good. Um, but the, what I'm saying is the, the point I'm making is that the GA have taken the choice of watching this game at home. I mean, there would have been one of the organisations down through the years that say they wouldn't have promoted, say, the drinking or anything else. And that kind of goes hand in hand when you go to a pub. But the problem that's there at the moment is if you can't get it at home, if you can't watch this game and you're passionate about it, you don't have a choice but to go to a pub. So what did you do for last weekend's matches? I ended up going out. I ended up going out. Uh, because I couldn't, I couldn't, I knew I, that if I tried to get it at home, it just wouldn't happen. 
Um, you know, people talk about this having this dodgy boxes and stuff like that. Um, watch it through that. You just couldn't watch it. There's, there's no pleasure in it. And before you're finished, the game has frozen over so many times that you're actually behind on, on the whole game. Eugene there. Then Jim called Colin from Wexford. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't watch it, Colin, but what that man said was near enough what I wanted to say. But the other, the other t- way I look at this, like I spent all my life with GAA. And I'm retired now, I'm well retired, and I was hoping to be able to sit down on a Saturday evening or Sunday and watch a couple of matches. The other thing, the, the man over GAA go on the news wouldn't fill you with confidence, I can assure you. You know, I mean, I mean, they're talking about getting money for it. I don't know how much RTE is getting off the government. GAA is getting off the government. They're getting licensed, and now they want to take more of it. Don't get me wrong. The money is not a problem in my case. But I wouldn't get it here where I am. You're lucky to get any internet at all, like that kind of way. So here I am, just like, I can't see nothing. Right. RTE says it, Declan McBennett, the group head of sport, was on on, with our colleagues in the news. One just before we came in and he says any revenue, he wasn't prepared to go into details of how much revenue is gleaned from it, but any revenue they get from it, is invested in sports rights, which are then free to air. Yeah, but I mean, uh, why couldn't he give us a bit of information about what they were going to get over, or what? You know, I mean, we're in the we're in we're, you know, we're in the dark here. You know, I mean, I can't understand. Like, well, I know there's a lot of matches together, and so on and so forth. But and no disrespect to the footballer of the teams that were playing last week. Everyone knew before last weekend what way them matches were going to go. I, I went out and cut the grass because, I mean, there was no, just there was no point in looking at them like that kind of way. But there was two great hurling matches on. We couldn't see them. Right. Well, you, uh, you, and I just wonder, Colin, like, they knew there were going to be great hurling matches. So he said they didn't put them on design on GA Go because the new people had gone to see and, and and the people they sell to get uh, would be paying for it. I'm just wondering... Did that? That's the way. Is that how it happened? All right. Um, you know, William, you think there's a solution here, do you? There's a very simple solution. I mean, if you look at RT when the World Cup and the European Championships was on, if there was down to the last pool games when there was two or three games in the pool, they showed games in RT News. Now, if you go to Virgin, you go to BBC, go to Sky, go to any other channel, like yesterday. In England, the league championship, the Division One title, was the last round of games, ten games, and you could press the red button and watch whatever game you wanted. That's the simple solution. That's it's so easy, but obviously it's the money grabbing thing. So all they have to do is show the extra games in RT News now, or just put a red a red button on RT One or RT Two. And Anybody can watch the games then. All right. Well, as I said, as I said there a minute ago, uh, the group head of RT Sport, Declan McBennett, was on, our co- on with our colleagues in the news at one earlier. Here's what he had to say about how the choice is made for what games are shown free to air and which ones go to GA Go. It, it's it's a combination of RTE picking the games that they either want or are mandated to do, and then subsequently the second platform, which used to be Sky Sports and is now GAA Go, has the opportunity to pick up the rest. So they are now doing 39 games in comparison to Sky when they were doing 14. RTE are doing uh, 69 GAA games this year as opposed to 40. Right. So, so there have been monster, monster hurling matches. However, we have 15 matches that we have discretion over. We have four provinces and two codes to carry. We cannot co- cover the whole of the Munster Hurling Championship to the neglect of counties like Sligo or Clare or indeed Loud this what's, coming what's weekend. Sort of, William, going back to you on this, the... the sorry, sorry, 
he made one statement. The very first part of the statement was that they choose games that they want to choose. So is he telling me that the head of sport or people in the, in the, in the RT sports department didn't look at Cork and Tip and say, that's going to be a cracking game, but we, we won't bother showing it. It was on the start of it, it was on no other channel. They could have shown it, and they said they could use the red button, they could have put on RT News. No, they didn't do it. I, I think what they say is that they, they buy a package from the GAA and they, yeah, they buy the ones they, for the finals and the semi-finals. No, no, no. What he said was they picked the games they want. He made that go back over the statement. That's the first. They picked the games they want. So obviously they didn't want to show a cork and tip. By next Sunday, there'll be six games played in the Munster Senior Hurling Championship and there'll be four of them not shown on, on free-to-air television. So obviously, if RT are picking the games they want, they don't want to show the RT or the Monster Hurling Championship. Right. So, uh, well, I said that's what he said. Go back over his statement. The first thing he said was they picked the games they want to pick. William on the live line with Colm O'Mungoyne. And in the morning on Today with Claire Byrne, the rising interest in League of Ireland football and teams like the Hoops, Shamrock Rovers, now it's selling out matches and gathering in families and new fans. It's brilliant to see. Evelyn O'Rourke was in Tala on Friday night for a sold out match with Bowes. So this was a sellout, wasn't it, on Friday night? Oh, it certainly was. It was rammed. The capacity in Tala Stadium, the home ground there for Shamrock Rovers. Or the Hoops, Claire, as it's known by real fans. Oh, I you're down with the lingo oh, now. Oh, I am all about the Hoops now. <laughs> Uh, it's over 8,000 and they have a newsstand there ready to be opened in the summer which will extend its capacity to over 10,000 and judging by the ticket sales this capacity will be very welcome and when you say as you look at the figures it's all very encouraging for the home game attendances this season they say are up by 27% compared to the same period last year with industry predictions estimating that total attendances and grounds this season could hit the 1 million mark so how do they explain it all well there's lots of different reasons when you talk to people they say the quality of the football has improved. The clubs are trying really hard to make the match safe and fun and family friendly. And thirdly they say that people are really valuing their community, that the local team, maybe a little more since lockdown, there's maybe a stronger appreciation of what an evening at a match can offer. It's good value and people are looking for experiences as we know Claire, more than ever. So then the match that you went to on Friday night and the fact that it was sold out, did the atmosphere confirm all of those reasons for the increase in the number of people going along? Yeah, I mean it was a beautiful evening. It looked dreamy, it looked along, you could see the mountains in the background. It was really gorgeous. The excitement was there. I love walking to a stadium on those kind of evenings because people are dressed head to toe in the green and white and of course the red and black of Rivals Bohemians but lots of Gardaí visible too. It felt really safe. It looked really well organised. The music was pumping and the first person I spoke to outside the stadium there was the CEO of Shamrock Rovers, Dennis Dunahoo and he really, Claire, is one happy man. It's absolutely brilliant. A Dublin derby. It's been sold out since Tuesday. Bohemians sold out their allocation, I think, in about 20 minutes. It's not our first sold out game of the season. We're seeing sold out signs all around the league. We'll have a new stand opening that'll add another 2,000 odd seats. We'll have European football in the summer. We're confident that we'll see a 10,000 attendance at a League of Ireland game this season. And when you look back on the dark days, you know, I'm not even talking COVID, but like what might have been an average crowd for you? Good crowd would have been three, three and a half. It's not just us. We obviously have the biggest crowds because we have the biggest stadium. And even a club like Shelburne, who were very, very, very successful in the noughties, winning leagues and qualifying for Europe, they're getting more people now today than they were back then. It's right across the league. Evelyn O'Rourke's report from Shamrock Rover Stadium in Tala for today with Claire Byrne.
Now, last week, Ryan Tuberty was talking about the prevalence and difficulties of loneliness. And lots of people got in touch with the programme to say how good it is to volunteer your time to help others in breaking out of loneliness. So Ryan's guest in the morning was Shanette Budai of the Roscommon Volunteer Centre. Shanette Budai, good morning. Welcome to our show. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. Very nice to meet you. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself, please, because uh, maybe where you were born and uh, your progress kind of globally, you've you've been around. (laughs) Talk to me. Talk to me about all of that. I have. Yeah. So I was born in a very, very small country in South America called Guyana, which is an interesting country because it's the only English speaking country in on the continent. And it's technically part of the Caribbean or the West Indies. And uh, the country gained independence in 1966. So very recent, really. And at that time, my father said that he wanted us to grow up in a very stable country, have opportunities, you know, educational opportunities, job opportunities. And he decided to make the um, move to New York. And he went there first. And later on, my sister, my mother and I joined him. So it was about five when I went to the States. And my formative years were in the States. But I was quite lucky because I had a very strong Guyanese community around me. Um, so what, what, how would you characterize? Sorry for cutting off, but the, the Guyanese community. Yes. What what are the? I mean, you can't always sweep with 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 one description. But how would you describe the, the people that you would have? Yes. Been living with and from from your tradition. Yeah, well, I mean, it's important to say that Guyana is a small country, so its population, I don't know if you... If you no, tell, would me, tell us it, everything, yeah. It's 750,000 people. <laughs> okay. so, a boutique country. Okay. <laughs> it's very, very small. So yeah. um, when people from Guyana go abroad, they kind of latch on to the next Guyanese person they can find. Yeah, and we call that Ireland. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> We're not far off yet. But, but it's useful because having a community or having people near you, you can share information, you can socialise, you can, um, you know, uh, celebrate important uh occasions together sure. um, and it, it's especially when you're moving to a new country it's that sharing of information and that networking that's so vital in helping you, helping you get established yeah. locally and Ryan spoke about how volunteering is good for the soul part of the reason we, we asked you to come and see us today is because uh, the word volunteer and volunteering and volunteerism kept coming up in the last week or so on the programme mm. when people spoke about it in uh, hand in hand with the notion of loneliness that's right and people were curious as to how do we get out of being lonely? How do we emerge from that shadow? Because, you know, it's not, and it's not even about shyness. It's just about where to go, what to do. There's only so many times you can go to the pub. There's only so many times you can wait by the phone for a call or a text. So tell us where you come in on, on, on this. Right. So I work for Riscommon Volunteer Centre. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm the manager there. And Riscommon Volunteer Centre is part of a network of other volunteer centres. There are 29 volunteer centres in the country, four in Dublin and one in every single county. I never knew that. I, and I never knew that. It's a fantastic yeah. infrastructure that we have in the country because what we do is we can communicate with uh, local charities and um, um, and and small community groups like that are out there. Like the things. Tidy Towns, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, vintage clothes shops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Big fan. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. And we uh, find out what their needs for volunteers are. Mm-hmm. And then we meet with people in the community who have a bit of time, who have extra, um, who have skills that they want to give back, who have the passion, the drive. Right. And we connect the two. We connect the organisation to the people. And we hope that they're a good 
match. So we try to learn a bit about what it is that they're both looking for and try to make it a quality uh, volunteer engagement experience. Right, so in the event somebody listening this morning, let's say, it doesn't have to be Roscommon, you just mm. say it's, it's, it's a national thing. Yeah. And they go, I've, I've always wanted to do something, as you say, give something back maybe. I have the time, I have yes. the inclination, I have five hours a week to give here. Yes. Uh, and I'm really into uh, books or old clothes or whatever. And you say, pr- or plants. And you say, let's have a look at it. Uh, let's have a look. You'll guard a vet you obviously for starters and make sure you're clear. And then we'll say, okay, well, there's a tidy towns meeting there on Saturday. You should go there. Next thing, the person's wearing a, a yellow jacket and they're out with other people on, on, on the streets yeah, and helping yeah. out. And, yeah. So the first port of call would be to go to either your local volunteer centre. So it would be the name of your county plus volunteer. So volunteer centre, so Wexford Volunteer Centre, Galway Volunteer Centre. Uh, or you can go to the Volunteer Ireland website. So Volunteer Ireland are a national organisation that promote volunteering across the country. Great. They do a lot of research, they do a lot of campaigning um, and a lot of uh, high-level kind of um, engagement, you know, with the various departments. Um, so you can find out about the vol- volunteer centres from the Volunteer Ireland website as, yeah. as a first port of call. Perfect. Um, and then there's a platform that we use called iVol, which lists all the community organisations within a county and all the volunteer opportunities that those organisations have. So it's kind of like... Um, advertisement, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, role descriptions of, of the opportunities that are available. So call into your local volunteer centre and they'll tell you what's available to you locally. And, it, you know, it could be according to the amount of time you have, your skills, your location. And we see that more ad hoc volunteering is becoming prevalent because people just haven't got as much time to give, but they're still interested in contributing to their community. So we have something called the Community Events uh, Program, which helps you uh, volunteer at once-off events like uh, festivals or parades, tree plantings, whatever it might really be. Really nice. Yeah. Do you, do you um, make an association sometimes? Well, I don't want to shoehorn it in, but I mean, that sense of loneliness might be a bit strong, but sense of people looking for companionship or a community, back to where we began with, with uh, Guyana. Yeah. We need each other. People forget that. We're social creatures at the end of the day. And we only have each other in our lives. You know, that's yeah, that's true. the simple truth. And so um, we need to find ways not to live siloed lives. And um, I think volunteering is one way of doing that. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's about finding out finding connections, finding out what's stopping us from making that connection. And... Um, and and just taking the opportunity to explore and to, to meet people. People do go into volunteering to to socialize, to learn, to develop new skills. Yeah. Jeanette Budai from the Ryan Tuberty Show. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.